Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. How should the U.S. respond to the attack in Jordan that killed three American troops? A retired colonel weighs in following President Biden's decision to take action. An Iran-backed terrorist group made a surprise announcement to cease all operations against U.S. forces. What's behind this? House Republicans voted to advance the effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. More on the next steps and what lawmakers are saying on both sides of the aisle. Georgia Trump prosecutor Nathan Wade avoids testifying in his divorce case about an alleged affair with Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. More on the settlement reached yesterday that canceled today's hearing. More allegations of plagiarism at Harvard University, this time involving the head DEI officer and a major Harvard donor pulls the plug on donations. Find out why. A Delaware judge ruled Elon Musk can't keep a potential $55 billion pay package from Tesla. What this means for one of the richest men in the world with the host of Entity Business. After almost 90 years, has someone finally found Amelia Earhart's missing plane? Hear what a team of explorers have to say about it. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, January 31st. Yeah, and Evelyn, one thing's for sure, U.S. policy has for sure helped keep a wider war from activating here with the military hardware like the aircraft carriers keeping Hezbollah at bay at Israel's northern border and then also just persuading the Israelis not to take a preemptive strike there. I see. Yeah, interesting. Well, we have to see, though, what um, his response to the attack in Jordan will actually lead to, and that's our top news today, President Biden is vowing to retaliate against the Iran-backed groups responsible for launching a drone strike that killed three U.S. soldiers. When asked yesterday if he's decided on a response, the president said yes, but he didn't give further details. That's as pressure mounts for him to confront Iran directly. There's mounting fears over the conflict in the Middle East escalating after the U.S. says Iran-backed militants launched a deadly drone attack killing three U.S. soldiers and injuring more than 40 others. Our thoughts and prayers continue to be with them. The attack happened Sunday in Jordan on a U.S. military base at Tower 22. The Pentagon says U.S. troops were stationed there to support the, quote, lasting defeat of ISIS. President Joe Biden vowing to retaliate. When asked if he blames Iran, he had this to say. I do hold respons them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. Tehran has denied responsibility for the attacks. Now, many U.S. leaders are trying to determine how to respond. We certainly don't want to warn uh, Iran. This is a very dangerous situation that has spread beyond Gaza already. Any action the U.S. takes could further impact the Israel-Hamas war and broaden tensions it has sparked in the Middle East. The administration has a lot to think about here to avoid escalating this into a larger regional conflict. That's not something that we want to, that the United States wants to get into right now. While it's unclear what exact response the U.S. will take, the Pentagon said this Tuesday. While we do not seek to escalate tensions in the region, we will also take all necessary actions to protect our troops, our facilities, and our interests. 
And here for some analysis on how the U.S. should respond and what strike is most likely is retired Colonel Grant Newsham, who's a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and the author of When China Attacks. Colonel Newsham, thank you for your time this morning. Given the administration's track record, what response do you expect? Oh, I would expect a retaliatory pinprick that isn't going to impress anybody very much. Uh, and that's a problem. The other guys have got to see that they shouldn't have done this and shouldn't do it again. And that is going to require some real force against targets that matter. But I'm not convinced this administration can do it. Uh, it does sound as though their primary goal is to not provoke a wider war. Uh, well, you've already got a war and you're going to get more of it if you just roll over once again. We've been attacked 200 times and finally somebody got killed, but people have been injured before. And finally, they think they need to do something. Well, I hope they do and do the right thing. So what response do you think that the United States should take here? Well, it has to be forceful and powerful enough to put the fear of God in people. Uh, it's not just destroying some buildings, uh, but it uh, does involve uh, killing some people and a lot of them, unfortunately. And that's what the military is for. They should already have a list of targets that they can go down that are going to hurt the other side. You go after their center of gravity. And if the center of gravity happens to be Iran, well, then you do something that's going to make Iran pay for it. And there's a lot of targets that they should have. If they don't have those already, uh, in fact, before this attack took place, uh, then everybody above the rank of lieutenant colonel at Central Command should be fired. They should have this. Uh, but also don't forget uh, economic pressure that you can put on Iran, and this needs to be done right away. Uh, basically, complete oil sanctions, so they're not selling any of this oil anywhere. And if anyone wants to buy it, say the Chinese, they're going to have the People's Bank of China uh, licensed to operate in the United States, suspended for a year for starters. And anybody else who thinks they're going to fund Iran uh, while we're getting killed, well, they're going to pay a price too, even if they're supposedly our friends. So retired Colonel Grant Newsham, if the Qatayi Hezbollah, the Iraq group, which is one of the groups suspected of this attack, has now said that it's going to stop attacking the United States so that it doesn't embarrass the Iraqi government, is that one of the targets? Or does it have to be something within the IRGC leadership? Oh, you so you've got a range of targets to go after and you want to make this as personal as possible. So you do go after leaders where you find them and you, uh, really, you, you're not restricted just to a geographic area. And also I said, as I said, while this has to be a very strong military uh, uh, response, like we haven't done before, you also go after them asymmetrically on these areas where they are very vulnerable, in fact, where they're most vulnerable and that is economically, financially. Uh, and finally, we should finally play rough. I mean, we've given the Iranians $6 billion to, do, to launch these attacks on us, basically. And the entire Iran policy, starting in the Obama administration and now in the Biden administration, uh, has been one of weakness. It has just provoked them. It's actually provoked them to operate. And their objective is to dominate the region, destroy Israel, and we haven't done much to stop them yet. And Colonel and Newsom, just, just in 30 uh, seconds here, the, yeah. yeah, everything you're saying makes sense. It just, if, if the United States has already attacked Yemen, putting pressure on these Houthis, how do these terrorist groups work? Does Hezbollah look on that and say, okay, well, we're going to make sure that we back off, or does it have to be a direct attack on them to keep Americans safe? 
but you have to make it personal. As I said, if all you're doing is knocking down some buildings, some supply depots, uh, well, they'll rebuild those and go back to work. It has to be one where uh, people start dying and you have to do it on a large enough scale and it has to be the right people. Supposedly, our intelligence can figure that out, uh, but there's no easy way around this. The tougher you are, the less likely it is we're going to be attacked again. Yeah, it is definitely a balancing act for the U.S. forces here to prevent a wider war while also avenging those Americans. Retired Colonel Grant Newsham, Senior Fellow at the Center for Security Policy, thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. An Iran-backed terrorist group operating in Iraq and Syria has said they will suspend military operations against U.S. forces. Kataib Hezbollah made the surprise announcement on Tuesday. The announcement comes two days after a drone attack killed three U.S. service members in the region. The U.S. said radical Iran-backed groups, most likely Kataib Hezbollah, were responsible. Now the group claims they'll no longer carry out operations against the U.S. in order to, quote, prevent embarrassment to the Iraqi government. Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder reacting to the statement, saying actions speak louder than words. Kataib Hezbollah is considered the most powerful armed faction in the Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella group of Iran-backed proxies in the country. The Israel Defense Forces are now using new strategies to battle Hamas terrorists. This comes after Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the latest ceasefire proposal is strong. Entities Jason Perry has a war update. Security camera footage inside this hospital shows what appears to be doctors and patients carrying military-style rifles. But they were actually Israeli troops in disguise as they raided the Bencina Hospital in the West Bank on Tuesday. The security footage didn't show any actual gun battles, but Israeli authorities say they killed three armed terrorists inside the hospital. The IDF chief of the general staff said the terrorists inside the hospital were planning to carry out a terrorist attack to kill Israeli civilians. We do not want to turn hospitals into battlefields with patients on the right and doctors and nurses on the left and terrorists in the middle. But we are even more determined not to allow hospitals to become a place that allows terrorists to stash weapons, to rest, to go out to carry an attack. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Monday that the latest ceasefire proposal to release hostages in the Gaza Strip is strong. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this on Tuesday. I hear things about all kinds of hostage deals, so I want to clarify. We will not end this war short of achieving all of its objectives. We will not withdraw the IDF from the Gaza Strip, and we will not release thousands of terrorists. None of this will happen. What is going to happen? An absolute victory. The humanitarian aid situation in the Gaza Strip could soon be getting worse after an Israeli intelligence report accused the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, of having 190 terrorists as employees. Now the World Health Organization is asking countries to resume funding to UNRWA after it fired nine workers accused of participating in the October 7th terrorist attacks. An Israeli government spokesperson on Tuesday said Israel is calling for the following. One, the defunding of UNRWA. Two, the resignation or dismissal of UNRWA's leadership. 
and a thorough investigation of what they knew about its ties with Hamas. The need to ensure that Gaza's children not be educated to be terrorists, as UNRWA has consistently practiced and, has, and as has been openly documented. In another development, Israel says it has now begun flooding Hamas tunnels with water. The report released by the IDF did not say what safety measures they would take to ensure no hostages are in those tunnels. Jason Perry, NTD News. The House Foreign Affairs Committee held a hearing yesterday on the UNRWA mission. The hearing comes amid allegations that some of UNRWA's staff were involved in the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. Accusations became public last week after UNRWA said it fired some staff after Israel provided the agency with information. The UN Secretary General said of the 12 people implicated, nine were fired, one is dead, and the identities of the other two was being clarified. Over a dozen countries, including the U.S., have paused funding to the organization since accusations came to light. In the past three years, the U.S. government has given nearly $1 billion to UNRWA. Here's what one lawmaker had to say at Tuesday's hearing. I can tell you that to expect moving forward, we will be introducing legislation to claw back any recent dollars that were sent to UNRWA. Some progressive lawmakers and humanitarian aid groups are urging the Biden administration to resume UNRWA funding immediately. UNRWA says it can't continue its work after February if funding isn't resumed. It's unknown how long the investigation into its staffers will take. And Hamas said it has received a new proposal for a ceasefire and release of hostages in Gaza and was reviewing the plan. This came after mediated talks involving Israel, the U.S., Egypt and Qatar, the most serious peace talks for months. A senior Hamas member said the proposal involved a three-stage truce. The group would first release the remaining civilian hostages, then soldiers and finally the bodies of hostages that were killed. There was no mention of a time frame or what would come after the final stage. It's the first time a plan is being considered by both sides since the fighting briefly paused at the end of November as part of a hostage prisoner swap. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has repeated his vow not to pull troops out of Gaza until total victory. Hamas says it will release its remaining captives only as part of a wider deal to end the war permanently. Hamas terrorists started the war on October 7th by storming into Israeli towns, killing around 1,200 people and taking over 240 hostages. Coming up, Georgia Trump prosecutor Nathan Wade avoids testifying in his divorce case about an alleged affair with Fulton County DA Fannie Willis. More on the settlement reached yesterday that canceled today's hearing. More Harvard controversy. The university's DEI officer facing allegations of plagiarism. And a major Harvard donor pulls the plug on funding. Find out why. Republican House members voted to move ahead with the impeachment of Homeland Security Department Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. How lawmakers are responding from both sides of the aisle. A retail theft and fake ID scheme shut down in Chicago. Three suspected ringleaders from Mexico now facing felony charges after a spike in shoplifting arrests of illegal immigrants. Stay tuned.
Good to have you back. Trump's special prosecutor Nathan Wade reached a temporary divorce settlement with his estranged wife yesterday. A judge canceled a hearing set for today. This means Wade will likely avoid having to testify about an alleged affair with his boss, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. Court filings show special prosecutor Nathan Wade reached a divorce settlement with his estranged wife Jocelyn Wade on Tuesday. Cobb County Judge Henry Thompson signed a temporary agreement, cancelling a hearing set for Wednesday. Wade was expected to testify about his relationship with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Willis tried to quash her subpoena in the divorce case, but Judge Thompson refused. The judge said he would decide if the DA should give a deposition after hearing Wade's testimony first. Willis is accused of having an improper relationship with the Atlanta prosecutor that she hired to bring election interference charges against Trump and over a dozen co-defendants. An attorney for co-defendant Michael Roman filed a motion to dismiss the case earlier this month on claims of prosecutorial misconduct. Roman accuses Willis of profiting significantly from an improper personal relationship with Wade on taxpayers' expense. Court documents show Wade paid for Willis to fly with him to two different cities. Roman is also accusing Willis of using Fulton County funds set aside to clear a backlog of pandemic-era cases to pay a large sum of money to Wade. Roman wants Willis and her office disqualified from the case. Trump is also demanding the case be thrown out, saying it's been totally compromised and is politically driven. A Fulton Superior Court judge gave Willis until Friday to respond to the allegations in writing and set a hearing on Roman's motion for mid-February. Fulton County's Audit Committee is asking Willis to address the improper relationship allegations. The Fulton County Commissioner is calling for Willis to provide explanations, including payments to Wade, by Friday. A lawyer for Wade's wife says her client's divorce case is not over, with only alimony and attorney's fees now resolved. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Harvard University could be facing a fresh plagiarism scandal after an earlier one led to the resignation of the institution's president. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on a new complaint against the university's chief diversity and inclusion officer. The complaint is against Harvard's chief diversity and inclusion officer, historian Sherry Ann Charleston. It alleges she lifted significant portions of text in her academic work without quotation marks. The complaint obtained by the Washington Free Beacon alleges that her doctoral dissertation contains a lot of other scholars' language verbatim with no quotation marks, with just references and footnotes. It makes about 40 comparisons between Charleston's writing and reference materials. In many of the examples, the two texts are not identical word for word, but there appears to be significant overlap. Harvard University has not yet commented on the allegations, nor its planned response to them. The latest development comes after former Harvard President Claudine Gay resigned after being accused of plagiarism. Billionaire investor Ken Griffin says he has halted his giving to the school over how it handled anti-Semitism on campus and the leadership crisis involving its president. The investor, speaking at the Managed Funds Association conference in Miami on Tuesday, wondered whether Harvard would get back to educating young adults to be the future leaders of the country. Or are they going to maintain being lost in the wilderness of microaggressions, a DEI agenda that seems to have no real end game? Are we going to educate the, the future members, the House and the Senate and the leaders of IBM? Or are we going to educate a group of, of young men and women who are just caught up in a rhetoric of oppressor and oppressee? Griffin made headlines in April 2023 by donating $300 million to Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences, raising the total amount of his gifts to more than half a billion. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. 
Entity has reached out to Harvard to confirm whether they've received the complaint and for their comments on the allegations. We didn't receive a response before airtime, but we'll keep you updated on this story if they get back to us. And turning now to the border crisis, House Republicans have voted to move for the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He stands accused of breaching public trust and refusing to comply with the law. House Republicans voted after midnight Wednesday to advance articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The articles accuse Mayorkas of a willful and systematic refusal to enforce immigration laws and breaching public trust in his claims to Congress that the southern border is secure. The Homeland Security Committee members voted along party lines, with 18 Republicans in favor and 15 Democrats against. Committee leaders told NTD Mayorkas' actions left them with no other option. He's, he's breaking the laws Congress has passed. It says shall detain. He's not doing that. Um, in fact, he's turned it upside down, created policies that speed people into the country. Um, he has lied repeatedly when he said that the border is secure and that we have operational control. Uh, and so uh, he's refused to enforce the border. He's lied to Congress. This is the only remedy Republicans have left to do anything uh, between now and the election cycle uh, to try to secure the border. It's a rare move to impeach a cabinet official. The last successful cabinet impeachment was nearly 150 years ago. House Democrats say Republicans haven't presented evidence of impeachable offenses and that the move is political as border security becomes a top issue in this year's election. Well, they don't have any witness who said that there was uh, bribery, treason or high crimes or misdemeanors that were committed. They brought in three state attorney generals. None of them said anything like that. In fact, one of them didn't even testify about it. Right now, a bipartisan bill is being readied in the Senate that will enact the first major border policy changes in over a decade. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman said impeachment proceedings aren't the solution to the country's immigration issues. There is no single solution to our complex and broken immigration system. We need to take a large macro-level look at our immigration laws and we need to modernize them. The Republicans in this hearing are talking about how uh, Secretary Mayorkas is violating the law because he is not detaining every single immigrant uh, as they claim the law requires. They don't have the funding. They literally do not have the space to put people in detention. That, and that has been the case long before Secretary Mayorkas took over. The full House could vote on Mayorkas' impeachment as soon as next week. If approved, the charges would go to the Senate for a trial. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And for more discussion on the articles of impeachment against DHS Secretary Mayorkas, we hear from Jessica Vaughn, the Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies. Jessica, I really appreciate your time today. Do you think these charges are justified? Why or why not? Yes, I, I think the Republicans have a very good case here um, on the two articles, which is basically um, failing to enforce the law and uh, in two ways, both at the border and in the interior. The law says that uh, people who cross the border illegally are to be detained. And if they can't be detained because of resources, then they can be immediately returned to Mexico. It also says that uh, non-citizens who commit certain levels of offenses, call, something called an aggravated felony, that they must be detained and removed. And um, Mayorkas issued policies telling uh, immigration authorities not to do that. And on top of it, 
he has um, repeatedly uh, denied that uh, uh, that there is a crisis at the border, said that the government has control over what's going on at the border when, you know, anybody uh, who observes what's happening at the border knows that that is not the case. And in fact, these are pretty bald-faced, flagrant misstatements that are, are, are pretty shocking. Uh, there used to be kind of a bipartisan consensus in this country that it, at least a minimal level of enforcement had to occur of laws Congress passed. And, and that has not been the case here. So this is quite extraordinary, the extent to which they are ignoring the law and the extent to which they are defiant of efforts to hold them accountable. Jessica, you touch on law enforcement. DHS Secretary Marcus defended himself, writing a letter to Mark Green saying that his parents instilled in him irreverence for enforcing the law. That was his defense. Some legal scholars say the GOP's allegations assert Mayorkas engaged in maladministration not high crimes and misdemeanors. Can you explain what each of those would look like and which one Mayorkas engaged in, if any? Well, it, yes, the, the Democrats are saying uh, a couple of things. One is um, that this is just a policy disagreement, not um, you know something that's crossing the line. Um, and this idea of maladministration um, implies negligence um, or you know just kind of bungling things. Um, the problem with that argument is that, first of all, the, the it is in, in writing, in black and white, for anyone to see the executive orders and um, memoranda that Mayorkas have, has signed ordering uh, immigration authorities at the border and in the interior of the country to stop enforcing the law, to literally you know ignore what the law says and do what he says. And as far as just incompetence goes, um, you know, this has been going on for three years. I, I think it's pretty clear that this is not just, you know, some um, aberration, uh, that this is happening by design as planned and executed by Secretary Mayorkas with the approval of the White House. Well, Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, thank you for weighing in. Thank you for having me. Three men from Mexico are facing felony charges for leading a retail theft ring and selling fake IDs to illegal immigrants. The suspected ringleaders of the scheme were arrested in Chicago last week. A spike in shoplifting arrests on Michigan Avenue led to an investigation. Here's Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart on the fraud and theft scheme. This story we were getting over and over again. So we did an undercover operation as a result of that. We got enough information to direct us where this was going on. We then worked on this thing for a couple weeks, and then we started buying some of these phony cards ourselves. At the conclusion of that, we executed a search warrant, and during the course of it, this is what we got. Sheriff Dart says investigators recovered close to 500 fake IDs. The fakes include driver's licenses, social security cards, and even green cards. He said some individuals involved were directed to steal specific items to get an ID card. Police say the fake IDs cost around $150 on average. Investigators believe there are other operations in the city targeting illegal immigrants. Numbers are staggering, as you can see behind me. They're increasing exponentially every month. 
So driving home the notion, we have to address this issue. The three individuals um, that we arrested um, are individuals who are foreign nationals as well. It appears as if they'd been doing this for some time. And New York is considering a plan to relax hiring qualifications for 4,000 jobs so they can be filled by illegal immigrants with work permits. The plan would allow bypassing proof of education, previous employment, and English proficiency. The state's Department of Civil Service says 4,000 vacant positions have already been found so they can enter the workforce. The agency's memo stated most of the jobs are entry-level positions in healthcare, hospitality, auto repair, and building or ground maintenance. Officials listed three barriers in the memo that are stopping illegal immigrants from getting state jobs. Limited English, being unable to verify education, and previous employment. The department says it would waive the usual requirements by creating temporary positions with transitional titles while they obtain the required credentials. Up next, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley step up efforts to secure donors ahead of their next primaries. The two will face off again in South Carolina at the end of the month. Speaker Mike Johnson reportedly says a bipartisan border deal is dead in the water and accusations are flying about what is behind the derailment. Find out the latest. Good to have you back. Now an election update in the race to secure the Republican nomination. Both former President Trump and Nikki Haley are pushing hard to secure donors. Trump is riding on two early season victories in Iowa and New Hampshire. Haley, meanwhile, has vowed to stay in the race. Aerospace giant Robert Bigelow and businessman Don Ayern have both made sizable commitments to the Trump campaign. Officials with MAGA Inc., the Trump Super PAC, say they have raised more than $46 million in the second half of last year. That's a big spike from the $13 million they raised in the first half of 2023. Haley is Trump's only remaining rival. She has also launched a big fundraising push ahead of the primary in her home state of South Carolina. The former U.N. ambassador has earned the praise of hedge fund billionaire Ken Griffin, but he hasn't made any promises. Haley is capitalizing off of Trump's threat last week to block her donors from his camp. Since then, her campaign says she's raised nearly $4 million in online donations. And more politics. House Speaker Mike Johnson reportedly saying a bipartisan border deal is officially dead. That's according to Republicans who attended a meeting with him yesterday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the reactions of lawmakers. Speaker Johnson's office says he'll address the matter at length on Wednesday. He told ABC News just the day before that based on what's been suggested in the bill, it would be a non-starter in the House. Some Democrats are accusing former President Trump of working behind the scenes to derail a potential border deal and that Speaker Johnson is helping him do it. Donald Trump does not want Republicans to solve our problems. He wants the problems to persist so that he can use it for his election campaign. Johnson denies this. He says the first and most important job of the federal government is to protect its citizens. I have talked to, to former President Trump about this issue at length, and, um, and he understands that. He understands that we have a responsibility to do here. Trump acknowledged that some lawmakers blame him for stalling the bill, but said he doesn't mind. Yeah, I said, that's okay. Please blame it on me. Please. Because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. 
Congressman Pete Aguilar slammed who he called MAGA Republicans in the House and Senate for walking away from a bipartisan deal that he says would strengthen border security, support Israel, and help Ukraine. In the shameful display of partisanship, they are abdicating the responsibility to solve problems on behalf of the American people. Republicans say President Biden can tackle the immigration crisis without a bill, but Biden says he's done all he can without Congress. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. House Republicans hold a slim majority heading into November 2024. Terry Schilling, the president of the American Principles Project, told me there's a key issue in competitive House races in districts Biden won that may shift the balance of power. Here's Schilling on how much is at stake in this upcoming election. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, so the magic number for majority control in the House of Representatives is 218, and Republicans have 219 seats. So this next election is obviously an opportunity for them to expand their margins, but it's also an opportunity for them to lose uh, the majority. Uh, I, the big question is, how does the presidential uh, election fare for them? Does it add more seats as a takeaway? And also, did Republicans learn their lessons from 2022? It was supposed to be a big wave year, but it ended up becoming just a trickle. And so those two questions, what happens there is going to determine whether or not they expand or uh, expand the majorities or lose them. And Terry, of course, we've seen the slim majority get even slimmer with the expulsion of Representative George Santos. Bill Johnson resigned to be a university head and then Kevin McCarthy left Congress. So how are they going to proceed here? I mean, this is just one vote sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, the, the the problem that Mike Johnson has as speaker is that he really doesn't have a a working majority. And what I mean by that is there is a large faction of conservative House members, but there's a small faction of more establishment, more liberal uh Republicans that are holding things up. And so he's got to navigate this very delicately. You shouldn't, we should not be expecting any major reform packages to be done. The best thing that Mike Johnson can do right now is to hold the line, not allow Democrats to get away with anything enormous and to focus on the 2024 elections, expanding our majorities in both chambers, retaking the Senate, that's also up there, um, and then also winning back the presidency. If we do that, then we'll have a working majority and enough power to actually change things. So how is Speaker Johnson able to navigate this, given his slim majority and a lot of pushback from the more conservative members in his conference? Oh, well, frankly, he's not. It's, it's, I would not wish this job that Mike Johnson has on anyone. Uh, it is an impossible task. He is getting hit from both the left and the right and the center. Uh, he really doesn't have anything to work with because of how small the conservative majority is on the Republican side. And so he's really got to play it safe and just make sure that we can keep the team together and unified because the worst thing that could happen right now is to go into November with a divided and fractured party that's attacking and infighting, because that's never what happens on the Democratic side of the aisle. What can we expect in those competitive races in districts which Biden won? Well, I, I think that in those races where Biden won, you're going to see whether or not this is a referendum. Can Republican candidates in those districts show that Joe Biden has done harm to the economy and remind people of how good things were under President Trump? If they can articulate the fact of the matter that these people are worse off, and not just worse off, but much worse off than they were just four years ago, I think we'll retake the House and grow our majority. Well, we're definitely going to have to see how this plays out. Terry Schilling, president of the American Principles Project, thank you for giving us an update. Thanks for having me. 
Stay with us. A judge ruled against a potential $55 billion pay package to Elon Musk. We look at what it means for one of the richest men on earth with the host of Entity Business coming up. Thanks for staying with us. And we have Entity Business host Don Ma with us now. Good morning to talk about the case against Elon Musk's pay package. A Delaware judge ruled yesterday that the Tesla CEO can't keep a pay package potentially worth more than $55 billion. So, Don, what led the judge to make this ruling? Well, Judge uh, Kathleen McCormick uh, said that uh, what she found was that uh, the company's board of directors failed to prove that the compensation package uh, to Musk was fair. Uh, she says that the plaintiff had shown that the process leading to the approval of Musk's compensation was actually deeply flawed, according to her own words. Now, uh, just a bit of background information. That package uh, was granted to Musk from Tesla back in 2018, and it was the largest compensation plan in public history. Um, public corporate history rather the uh, according to the the judge and then later an investor sued uh musk and several tesla directors in 2018 claiming that uh musk's pay was uh, pay package was unfair and then the lawsuit accused musk and tesla's board of directors of breaching their duties and wasting corporate assets and unjustly enriching the billionaire now mccormick said that defendants had failed to prove that the compensation plan was just in their favor. So that's interesting because that also <clears throat> helped him actually make him the richest person in the world. So what is Musk's next course of action here? Well, experts believe that Musk uh, is likely to appeal. Uh, however, before that can happen, the judge has to finalize the ruling and uh, decide on compensation for the lawyers representing the plaintiffs. And Musk, Musk actually reacted on X saying that, uh, he said, quote, never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware, which the ruling happened. Uh, Musk had previously said that in discussions that a new uh, pay package was uh, with the board were on hold pending the outcome of this case. So now in light of this case, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that the judge, uh, Kathleen McCormick, does have a record of uh, being tough on Wall Street and that she has a history of ruling in favor of smaller investors and against uh, bigger corporations. Yeah, Don, and it's worth pointing out that back in the trial, one of the defense attorneys said that this pay package was a high-risk, high-reward deal and that it was pushed out by Tesla to show that this is a heart-stopping number that Musk could earn. But that, and afterwards, the company went from 53 billion to more than 800 billion and almost a trillion dollars. But has Musk given any statements on this ruling? Well, he did react, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that uh, he he thinks that uh, if he didn't have this uh, trial in uh, his company in Delaware, uh, maybe perhaps uh, the ruling uh, would have never happened. And. Um, Musk actually took to X yesterday asking if Tesla should change its state of incorporation uh, from Delaware to Texas. Again, uh, as I mentioned, the poll asked, should Tesla change its state of incorporation to Texas, uh, home of its physical headquarters? So far, an overwhelming 88% of X users who've uh, responded have said yes, actually. Wow. Well, let's see how that plays out. Thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business.
Coming up, freezing temperatures leave one Arkansas town without water while feet of snow pile up in Alaska. We take a look at some of the harshest winter conditions across the U.S. Are explorers one step closer to solving one of the most famous missing persons cases in modern history? A company thinks they may have found the plane wreckage of aviation legend Amelia Earhart. Good to have you back. Freezing temperatures leaving an Arkansas town without running water for the past two weeks. The outage has forced residents to line up for bottled water, fill up jugs, and take showers at state-provided water trucks. The outage is affecting about 1,400 residents in Helena, West Helena. Officials are racing to fix leaks in the city and restore water access, but they're facing the long-term challenge of overhauling a decades-old infrastructure system. The outages are affecting one of two city water systems. A local emergency management director said he thinks one pump is down completely and the other is not pumping very much water. The ice and the number of leaks um, and the number of major leaks, they could not maintain um, um, pressure in the in the um, in the tank nor the lines so that caused the domino effect of the um, water system failing for the most part. Anchorage, Alaska has received a lot of snow this winter even by Alaskan standards. The total accumulation is over 100 inches. That's over eight feet of snow. It's also the fastest time 100 inches of snow has ever fallen there. There is so much snow in Anchorage that commercial building roofs are collapsing. Authorities are warning residents to start shoveling at home to avoid a similar situation. Anchorage is on track to break its all-time record of over 134 inches in a winter. One local homeowner is making the best out of the weather, building a snowman that stands over 20 feet tall. Snowzilla, as it's called, actually first appeared in 2005 and return this year after a 10-year hiatus. And another resident says he doesn't mind the extra snow. It's a little bit more than usual. It's kind of fun, to be honest. I like to jump in the snow sometimes. It's a little hard since they haven't uh, cleared the sidewalks to walk here, so I slipped and fell a couple times. Right. Yeah, they kind of need to fix that. I well, like that. A little more than usual. Yeah, it's good that they built that snowman like a pyramid so it's safe and doesn't yeah. topple over on anybody. Smart engineering right there. <laughs> All right, um, a team of deep sea explorers think they may have located the wreckage of legendary pilot Amelia Earhart's plane. The Explorer Company released a sonar image they believe shows the outline of Earhart's missing Lockheed Electra. Miss Amelia Earhart was lost in mid-ocean. Amelia Earhart set out in 1937 to be the first woman to make an around-the-world flight. She never made it. A massive air and sea search was unsuccessful. Her plane was presumed to have gone down, but has never been known whether she survived, and if so, for how long. 
Now, the countless questions surrounding the disappearance of the aviator in her plane may soon be answered. Deep Sea Vision, a company of underwater archaeologists and marine robotics experts, have been on a three-month quest to find the ill-fated plane. Organizing and carrying out such a huge operation in the Pacific Ocean was no easy task. Mounting an expedition like this isn't easy. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's logistically very challenging. Um, it took us 18 months from start to finish to kind of put this whole thing together. How did they even begin to narrow their search in thousands of miles of ocean? We started by examining her, her final flight. Uh, we looked at her, her uh, flight path. Uh, we analyzed the winds, her altitude, all the information that we had. Um, and we came up with an area that we thought was reasonable um, and uh, the highest probability for where she could have went down. The crew took a mathematical approach. They divided larger probable areas into small sectors. And after months of searching, their state-of-the-art submersible captured some exciting images on sonar. Well, if you look at the sonar image, there's some uh, three key uh, characteristics on it. You see the twin vertical stabilizers in the back, and you see those very clearly in the image. Um, the, uh, the, the area that we found the aircraft was it, super flat and sandy. Um, and so to see anything protruding above the surface uh, would be highly unusual. And then thirdly, the size of the aircraft and the dimensions are very close to what we'd expect for her aircraft. So what happens next? Will there be closure in the greatest mystery in aviation history? So the first step is to confirm it. Then we kind of curate, figure out what the site looks like, how it's sitting in the, uh, in the mud and the sand. Um, and then the next step would be, if it's possible, to raise it to the surface and then restore it. And that process could take, I mean, it could take five, ten years. It's not, it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. The team have not released the location of the site, but say it lies around 100 miles west of Howland Island, where Earhart had hoped to refuel. They hope to return to the location soon to get better images with a deep water, remotely operated vehicle. Almost 90 years later. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Well, you talk about that History Channel documentary back in 2017. They had some really crazy theories about how this all happened. That they crashed in the Marshall Islands and then were taken to Saipan Island when they were t held hostage and then eventually died. Wow. Yeah. Incredible story. All right. Uh, we will head to a quick break here, but we'll be back in just a couple of seconds. So stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, Kira. Top stories, Hamas officials say they've received a new proposal for a hostage deal. It's the first plan being considered by both Hamas and Israel since last November when a temporary ceasefire ended. 
After three American soldiers are killed in a Middle East drone strike, President Biden vows to retaliate against the groups responsible, what that could look like and what it means for a regional conflict that's threatening to expand. More allegations of plagiarism at Harvard University, this time involving the head DEI officer, and a major Harvard donor pulls the plug on donations. Find out why. House Republicans voting to move ahead with impeachment efforts into Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Hear reactions from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Georgia Trump prosecutor Nathan Wade avoids testifying in his divorce case about an alleged affair with Fulton County DA Fannie Willis. More on the settlement reached yesterday that canceled today's hearing. Have you ever seen a 20-foot tall snowman? Someone in Anchorage, Alaska just built one. And more on the weather conditions that have provided him with the materials. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, January 31st. And in today's top news, Hamas said it has received a new proposal for a ceasefire and release of hostages in Gaza and was reviewing the plan. This came after mediated talks involving Israel, the U.S., Egypt and Qatar, the most serious peace talks for months. A senior Hamas member said the proposal involved a three-stage truce. The group would first release the remaining civilian hostages, then soldiers, and finally the bodies of hostages that were killed. There was no mention of a time frame or what would come after the final stage. It's the first time a plan is being considered by both sides since the fighting briefly paused at the end of November as part of a hostage prisoner swap. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has repeated his vow not to pull troops out of Gaza until total victory. Hamas says it will release its remaining captives only as part of a wider deal to end the war permanently. Hamas terrorists started the war on October 7th by storming into Israeli towns, killing around 1,200 people and taking over 240 hostages. So for more on this, we bring in Rabbi Abraham Cooper, the chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and associate dean at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Good morning. It's really good to see you. So in a new proposal, as we just heard, there would be a six-week pause in fighting. So the first proposal, remember, when I remember, it was two months and then one month, which both were denied. So what do you think are the chances here that this will actually go through and be accepted by Hamas? Well, um, I think we also have to remember that we're talking about a sovereign country and a terrorist organization. I, I think what's really changed uh, and what hasn't changed, what's changed is that the military situation in Khan Yunus has become tougher by the day. Uh, and that's their last stronghold uh, in Gaza in terms of Hamas. Secondly, they uh, have to heed uh, to some extent uh, what it is that... Um, uh, Qatar is putting on the table as they're one of their most important financial and political advisors. Mm -hmm. Countering that is probably the Iranians saying hold out to the last uh, person. So I think that the, despite the bravado, their statements are based on the fact that they're being squeezed more and more by, by Israel. From the Israeli point of view, the psychological warfare of seeing 
hopefully some of the hostage is still alive and the families constantly going to the media and to their neighbors and say, whatever it takes, we have to get them out. Uh, that's had a tremendous impact within Israel. So right now, um, there's perhaps a better chance for a deal. I think that deal will eventually, if it happens, means that the leadership of Hamas that's still left will have to leave. And the big question mark is if Israelis have to um, release hundreds of killers, uh, there's no question that Israel demanded that those have to go to Algeria or Qatar or somewhere else. You're, but, you're uh, breaking up a little bit, but let me follow up on that question, uh, on what you just said, because what are the risks when it comes to releasing those Palestinian prisoners, considering also that years back, Yahya Sinwar was also part of a hostage deal like that? Yes, he was. And uh, not only was he saved uh, uh, from a life sentence by, uh, by the release of uh, one Israeli hostage, later on he had uh, brain surgery in an Israeli hospital that saved his life. Uh, it's a huge risk for Israel, uh, but, you know, uh, the uh, Israel, Israeli society, I believe, like Americans, if you have the chance of bringing back a single, uh, you know, living hostage, you want to do what you can uh, in order to achieve it. Let's also remember a name by a person, uh, Hadar Golden, an Israeli soldier, and taken by Hamas, uh, I think, eight years ago. His body is still held by Hamas. So from the Hamas terrorist point of view, whether the hostage is alive or dead, it's a quote-unquote asset or a chip in their um, horrific and deadly war against the, the Jewish state. Right. So let me also talk, um, touch on <clears throat> other news in, uh, about UNRWA. So as we heard earlier, UNRWA will run out of money very soon. So tell me more about why you think Western countries were taking such big steps, even though millions of lives are dependent on UNRWA, <clears throat> excuse me, and it has also immediately reacted by terminating those involved and also started investigations. Well, um, uh, UNRWA is unfortunately part of the problem. They're not part of the solution for the day after uh, Hamas is out of the region. This is a UN organization, but uh, that is thoroughly corrupt. And by virtue of what we've seen uh, in the course of this war, so many of its members are either directly involved with Hamas or their loved ones uh, are. Uh, and uh, you have schools that have been used as launching sites uh, and their curriculum, which uh, I'm Simon Wiesenthal Center, who've testified many times, their curriculum for generations now has been a war curriculum. It doesn't promote peace with the Jewish neighbors. It promotes the myth that all Palestinians from generation to generation will be walking home, uh, you know, to take over the state of Israel. Right. They're There's part of actually, the problem. That's right. There's many allegations like this. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We have very limited time, but I just really wanted to ask that one more question that because there is a lot of criticism about that. Do you think that this is at some, some kind of collective punishment then? Because in the end, the people most strongly affected are the civilians in Gaza. No, no, not at all. I told Secretary Blinken a few weeks ago, all of the monies that are designated to UNRWA should still be used to help the Palestinian people, but it doesn't need to go through a thoroughly corrupt anti-peace group. You come up with a new set, you let Palestinians run their own lives, and you end this generation to generation, uh, if you will, welfare of labeling Palestinians for five generations now as refugees, 
end the gambit, make sure Palestinians who are not corrupt can run their daily lives, make sure they get their medical needs, make sure they get their educational needs. Got but it. Thank you. Thank you so much for your take on this. Rabbi Abram Cooper, I appreciate it. President Biden is vowing to retaliate against Iran-backed groups responsible for launching a drone strike that killed three U.S. soldiers. When asked yesterday if he's decided on a response, the president said yes, but didn't give further details. That's as pressure mounts for him to confront Iran directly. There's mounting fears over the conflict in the Middle East escalating after the U.S. says Iran-backed militants launched a deadly drone attack killing three U.S. soldiers and injuring more than 40 others. Our thoughts and prayers continue to be with them. The attack happened Sunday in Jordan on a U.S. military base at Tower 22. The Pentagon says U.S. troops were stationed there to support the, quote, lasting defeat of ISIS. President Joe Biden vowing to retaliate. When asked if he blames Iran, he had this to say. I do hold them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. Tehran has denied responsibility for the attacks. Now, many U.S. leaders are trying to determine how to respond. We certainly don't want to warn uh, Iran. This is a very dangerous situation that has spread beyond Gaza already. Any action the U.S. takes could further impact the Israel-Hamas war and broaden tensions it has sparked in the Middle East. The administration has a lot to think about here to avoid escalating this into a larger regional conflict. That's not something that we want to, that the United States wants to get into right now. While it's unclear what exact response the U.S. will take, the Pentagon said this Tuesday. While we do not seek to escalate tensions in the region, we will also take all necessary actions to protect our troops, our facilities, and our interests. An Iran-backed terrorist group operating in Iraq and Syria has said they will suspend military operations against U.S. forces. Kitab Hezbollah made the surprise announcement on Tuesday. The announcement comes two days after a drone attack killed three U.S. service members in the region. The U.S. said radical Iran-backed groups, most likely Qatar Hezbollah, were responsible. Now the groups claim they'll no longer carry out operations against the U.S. in order to, quote, prevent embarrassment to the Iraqi government. Pentagon Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder reacting to the statement, saying actions speak louder than words. Kitab Hezbollah is considered the most powerful armed faction in the Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella group of Iran-backed proxies in the country. Coming up next, House Republicans have voted to advance impeachment articles against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. More on what he's accused of and what's next. Georgia Trump prosecutor Nathan Wade avoids testifying in his divorce case about an alleged affair with Fulton County DA Fannie Willis. More on the settlement reached yesterday that canceled today's hearing up next. Welcome back. Trump's special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, reached a temporary divorce settlement with his estranged wife yesterday. A judge canceled a hearing set for today. This means Wade will likely avoid having to testify about an alleged affair with his boss, Fulton County DA Fannie Willis. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. 
Court filings show Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade reached a divorce settlement with his estranged wife Jocelyn Wade on Tuesday. Cobb County Judge Henry Thompson signed a temporary agreement, cancelling a hearing set for Wednesday. Wade was expected to testify about his relationship with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Willis tried to quash her subpoena in the divorce case, but Judge Thompson refused. The judge said he would decide if the DA should give a deposition, after hearing Wade's testimony first. Willis is accused of having an improper relationship with the Atlanta prosecutor that she hired to bring election interference charges against Trump and over a dozen co-defendants. An attorney for co-defendant Michael Roman filed a motion to dismiss the case earlier this month on claims of prosecutorial misconduct. Roman accuses Willis of profiting significantly from an improper personal relationship with Wade on taxpayers' expense. Court documents show Wade paid for Willis to fly with him to two different cities. Roman is also accusing Willis of using Fulton County funds set aside to clear a backlog of pandemic-era cases to pay a large sum of money to Wade. Roman wants Willis and her office disqualified from the case. Trump is also demanding the case be thrown out, saying it's been totally compromised and is politically driven. A Fulton Superior Court judge gave Willis until Friday to respond to the allegations in writing and set a hearing on Roman's motion for mid-February. Fulton County's Audit Committee is asking Willis to address the improper relationship allegations. The Fulton County Commissioner is calling for Willis to provide explanations, including payments to Wade, by Friday. A lawyer for Wade's wife says her client's divorce case is not over, with only alimony and attorney's fees now resolved. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Harvard University could be facing a fresh plagiarism scandal after an earlier one led to the resignation of the institution's president. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on a new complaint against the university's chief diversity and inclusion officer. The complaint is against Harvard's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, historian Sherry-Ann Charleston. It alleges she lifted significant portions of text in her academic work without quotation marks. The complaint obtained by the Washington Free Beacon alleges that her doctoral dissertation contains a lot of other scholars' language verbatim with no quotation marks, with just references and footnotes. It makes about 40 comparisons between Charleston's writing and reference materials. In many of the examples, the two texts are not identical word for word, but there appears to be significant overlap. Harvard University has not yet commented on the allegations, nor its planned response to them. The latest development comes after former Harvard President Claudine Gay resigned after being accused of plagiarism. Billionaire investor Ken Griffin says he has halted his giving to the school over how it handled anti-Semitism on campus and the leadership crisis involving its president. The investor, speaking at the Managed Funds Association conference in Miami on Tuesday, wondered whether Harvard would get back to educating young adults to be the future leaders of the country. Or are they going to maintain being lost in the wilderness of microaggressions, a DEI agenda that seems to have no real end game. Are we gonna educate the, the future members, the House and the Senate and the leaders of IBM? Or are we gonna educate a group of, of young men and women who are just caught up in a rhetoric of oppressor and oppressee? Griffin made headlines in April 2023 by donating $300 million to Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences, raising the total amount of his gifts to more than half a billion. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD has reached out to Harvard to confirm whether they've received the complaint and further comment on the allegations. We didn't receive a response before the airtime, but we'll keep you updated on this story if they get back to us. And from education to border security, House Republicans have voted to move for the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. 
He stands accused of breaching public trust and refusing to comply with the law. House Republicans voted after midnight Wednesday to advance articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The articles accuse Mayorkas of a willful and systematic refusal to enforce immigration laws and breaching public trust in his claims to Congress that the southern border is secure. The Homeland Security Committee members voted along party lines, with 18 Republicans in favor and 15 Democrats against. Committee leaders told NTD Mayorkas' actions left them with no other option. He's, he's breaking the laws Congress has passed. It says shall detain. He's not doing that. Um, in fact, he's turned it upside down, created policies that speed people into the country. Um, he has lied repeatedly when he said that the border is secure and that we have operational control. Uh, and so uh, he's refused to enforce the border. He's lied to Congress. This is the only remedy Republicans have left to do anything uh, between now and the election cycle uh, to try to secure the border. It's a rare move to impeach a cabinet official. The last successful cabinet impeachment was nearly 150 years ago. House Democrats say Republicans haven't presented evidence of impeachable offenses and that the move is political as border security becomes a top issue in this year's election. Well, they don't have any witness who said that there was uh, bribery, treason, or high crimes or misdemeanors that were committed. They brought in three state attorney generals. None of them said anything like that. In fact, one of them didn't even testify about it. Right now, a bipartisan bill is being readied in the Senate that will enact the first major border policy changes in over a decade. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman said impeachment proceedings aren't the solution to the country's immigration issues. There is no single solution to our complex and broken immigration system. We need to take a large macro-level look at our immigration laws and we need to modernize them. The Republicans in this hearing are talking about how uh, Secretary Mayorkas is violating the law because he is not detaining every single immigrant uh, as they claim the law requires. They don't have the funding. They literally do not have the space to put people in detention. That, and that has been the case long before Secretary Mayorkas took over. The full House could vote on Mayorkas' impeachment as soon as next week. If approved, the charges would go to the Senate for a trial. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Three men from Mexico are facing felony charges for leading a retail theft ring and selling fake IDs to illegal immigrants. The suspected ringleaders of the scheme were arrested in Chicago last week. A spike in shoplifting arrests on Michigan Avenue led to an investigation. Here's Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart on the fraud and theft scheme. This story we were getting over and over again. So we did an undercover operation as a result of that. We got enough information to direct us where this was going on. We then worked on this thing for a couple weeks, and then we started buying some of these phony cards ourselves. At the conclusion of that, we executed a search warrant, and during the course of it, this is what we got. Sheriff Dart says investigators recovered close to 500 fake IDs. The fakes include driver's licenses, social security cards, and even green cards. He said some individuals involved were directed to steal specific items to get an ID card. Police say the fake IDs cost around $150 on average. Investigators believe there are other operations in the city targeting illegal immigrants. The numbers are staggering, as you can see behind me. They're increasing exponentially every month. 
So driving home the notion, we have to address this issue. The three individuals um, that we arrested um, are individuals who are foreign nationals as well. It appears as if they'd been doing this for some time. An update on the statue of Jackie Robinson that was stolen last week from a public park in Wichita, Kansas. Fire crews found the burned remnants of that statue yesterday. The Wichita Fire Department received a call about a trash can on fire at a local park. They discovered what appeared to be pieces of a statue. A police spokesman said the statue was not salvageable. Police said they've conducted over 100 interviews. Surveillance video shows two people carrying the sculpture away to a truck later found abandoned. Authorities say there will be arrests in the case. And Anchorage, Alaska has received a lot of snow this winter, even by Alaskan standards. The total accumulation is over 100 inches. That's over eight feet of snow. It's also the fastest time 100 inches of snow has ever fallen there. There's so much snow in Anchorage that commercial building roofs are collapsing. Authorities are warning residents to start shoveling at home to avoid a similar situation. Anchorage is on track to break its all-time record of over 134 inches in a winter. One local homeowner is making the best out of the weather, building a snowman that stands over 20 feet tall. Snowzilla, as it's called, actually first appeared in 2005 and returned this year after a 10-year hiatus. And Starbucks launched its olive oil-infused drinks yesterday nationwide. This despite a flood of negative reviews on previous releases of the drinks. The lineup, called Oleato, contains two drinks. One's an oat milk latte. The other is a new toffee nut iced espresso. Both are infused with extra virgin olive oil. Oleato launched in a few U.S. cities last year before the nationwide launch yesterday. Starbucks CEO called the launch highly successful. He ranked it one of the top five product launches in the last five years. But the drinks have received mixed reviews so far, with some customers saying they're not worth coming back for. Okay, hmm. olive oil and coffee. That's a new one. It is a new one, but also, well, one, it's good for gut health. And two, I think I've been surprised in the past by olive oil, putting olive oil in various things, including excuse me, um, vanilla ice cream, for example. You should try that one. Vanilla ice cream, olive oil, and some sea salt. Well, if you're looking for the extra calories, maybe this can help. Maybe. All right, for anybody out there that is adventurous and is willing to try, let me know how it goes. But we're ending our show right now, and we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.